This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You are the leader in the courtroom, and you want the jury to be looking to you for the answers. When you figure out your theory, never deviate. You want the facts to be consistent, complete, incredible. The defense has no problem running out the clock. Delay is the friend of the defense. It's tough to grow a firm by trying to hold on and micromanage. You've got to front load a simple structure for jurors to be able to hold on to. What types of creative things can we do as lawyers, even though we don't have a trial setting? Whatever you've got to do to make it real, you've got to do to make it real. But the person who needs convincing is you. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, I have attorney Ben Newman out of Austin, Texas. Ben is a younger attorney, but he just got an incredible verdict in a really, really tough jurisdiction on a case that was not a slam dunk. And he's agreed to come on and talk to us about how he did it and how he got himself to the point where he could do it. Before we start talking to Ben, as always, I want to give a shout out to Law Pods. Law Pods is the company that produces and edits and distributes this podcast. They make it so easy. All I have to do is talk to people like Ben and they do all the rest of the work for me. So if you're thinking about doing a podcast, and I think you should, if you want to grow your practice, I highly recommend Law Pods. That being said, Ben, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Michael. I'm so excited to be on. Uh, I'm thrilled to be on. I, I listened to the very first episode of Trial Lawyer Nation with uh, Josh Parton, and I just remember the first time I saw it come up on my email feed. Before then, I had been looking for something to listen to on my commute that talked about trial skills and trying cases, and you know, I've been listening to it ever since, so I'm super thrilled to be here. And uh, With some of the names that are on here, I, I hope there's something of value that I can add, but uh, we're going to try. Well, I'll tell you, when I, you know, you sent me an email, uh, just not asking to be on the show, just telling me, you know, you'd learn some stuff at the podcast and you got a $1,076,000 verdict on a case with only $45,000 in medical expenses, some therapy and a couple of injections in Collin County, Texas, which is a place that I've always, with all respect to the people of Collin County, tried to avoid filing a lawsuit there. If there was anywhere else in the state, I can file one. Man, I want to learn from you. I want to figure out how you did that. So. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, but before we get to trial, tell me a little bit about you. Well, so I'm a father of, of one. I have a three-and-a-half-month-old baby, wife, Elizabeth, who I love very much. It helps me out with trials and and gives me the non-lawyer perspective, which we all kind of need sometimes. And, uh, yeah, I just I love trying cases. I, I wanted to try cases from the moment that I decided to become a lawyer. And from that moment on, Everything that I did in my career was to prepare me to to be a trial lawyer, and so I'm just really um, and and so I'm thrilled to be trying cases now and and to be on this podcast with you. So, how long have you been out of school? So, I have been licensed for six years. Um, I've been out of law school for six years, about yeah six and a half years. I'm pretty pretty young still, many would say, but I've worked hard to get trial experience and to learn and to um, read all the literature and, and use all the tools that are out there. And did you start off on your own or did you start off working with someone else? So when I started off, I started off with a, with a defense firm and they promised me immediate trial experience. 
And so I, I took that and, and tried a number of cases with them. And then from there, I went on to another defense firm and, and worked on some, some bigger cases. And then I, I was working on this wrongful death case while I was at that firm. And actually, it's funny. Sorry, this is the Dram Shop case that Sorry Delamont worked on a while back. And at the time, I didn't know she was on the other side. But I was working on that case, actually. And after hearing some of the stories of the plaintiffs, the wrongful death beneficiaries, that sort of thing is is really when I decided, okay, I'm going to make this jump. I'm going to the plaintiff side. This is the time. These are the people I want to be representing. So that's kind of how it really um, started for me, jumping over to the plaintiff side. I always wanted to do it. I'd always wanted to be on the plaintiff side. But Overall, I wanted to try cases, and uh, and yeah, so that's really when the time came for me. And I had met with a number of people leading up to that point, and um, figured I could probably get some pretty good referrals to get me started. And so I just jumped ship and started on my own. What was it about the plaintiff side that attracted you? Well, I, I like the idea of like going in and trying to win and get recovery for somebody who's injured as opposed to representing kind of a faceless client, if you will. Especially in that case, I really saw what some of these things can do to people, and and I really wanted to help them, Um, and I just found it to be a lot more exciting. I I just expected that it was going to be a lot more exciting than working on the defense side. And what made you decide to go out on your own instead of trying to you know, go into another firm, maybe a plaintiff's firm? Well, so I had uh, talked to a number of people, and and, and so I knew that I was going to be able to get some cases to get me started. Um, shortly after I went on my own, I, I got a pretty big plaintiff, uh, actually a breach of fiduciary duty case, and the firm had just lost their litigation associate, and they were looking. It was a contingency case; they didn't do that much litigation. So they were really looking for a second chair and somebody to go help get that case ready for trial. And so I was able to get in on that case and uh, the case ended up settling. So that is kind of what gave me my start. So I was working on that for quite a while. And then and then while working on that case, kind of cultivated some referral sources and was able to was able to bring in some cases and and, um, represent some some really good clients. And if you don't mind me asking, you know, going out on your own after spending a few years at a defense at two defense firms, uh, what did you do to cultivate referral sources? I called up people that were good trial lawyers. Honestly, I cold called a couple of trial lawyers, and some of them are some of my really great friends uh, to this day. And they just put me in touch with people and had lunch with me, and and they and you know, of course, every they like to talk about themselves, and and they would tell me about trials that they've been involved in, and. You know, I just had a blast listening to it, and they probably understood that I was genuinely interested, and um, that's kind of just, you know, how it all started. And, um, you know, there I was considering going to a couple of plaintiff firms actually here in town, here in Austin, and after I decided to go on my own, I got, like, the full support of those firms, and, you know, they've sent me some cases, and uh, and they've been great partners ever since. Well, that's great. There are so many, not everyone, but there are so many plaintiff's lawyers that have this abundance mentality. You know, there's plenty out there for all of us and right. your success does not detract from my success and vice versa. And it's so nice to to hear that that's still happening out there. Yeah. So what made you decide you wanted to try cases? I mean, the money's in settling them. Let's be, let's be honest. I mean, you can settle 10 cases in the time it 
takes to prepare one for trial? Yeah, so it's hard to really put my finger on where the, the fascination for trial came from. When I was a child, when I was a younger teenager, you know, my family watched a lot of courtroom dramas. And so maybe the thrill for the courtroom developed in me subconsciously early on. But far back as I can remember, I always wanted to do this type of work. And I wanted to actually be in the courtroom for a while. I thought that's all being a lawyer was. But then you you go to law school and you figure out that there are actually very there's a very few there are very few lawyers that spend the majority of their time in the courtroom or spend a lot of time in the courtroom. Um, so yeah, it just started early, and because I wanted to get good at trying cases and learn how to try cases, I went to Baylor, which has a phenomenal trial program. You know, the third year at Baylor, they have you reading hundreds of case law, hundreds of pages of case law a night on the rules of evidence, the rules of procedure, everything that you're going to use in a courtroom to kind of get you ready to where you can go try a case and do a decent job, really just all the basics. Um, so I, from the time I started looking at law schools, I knew that I wanted to go there and it was, and then when I got there and started doing, and started doing these exercises and started trying these, these, uh, mock cases, I really just fell in love with it more than I ever thought that I would. So, you know, it, it was kind of a, an early fascination and it turned into uh, a passion. And it's fun. It's, it's that's why I like that. It is an <laughs> absolute blast. <laughs> so what have you done then? Uh, you know, you went and worked with a defense firm, tried some cases. You gone out there and got some cases of your own. What did you do to learn your craft as a trial lawyer? So honestly, I, I, t I told you at the beginning of the podcast, or, or maybe it was before we got on, that I was looking for something to listen to because I, I had a commute and I was trying to find podcasts that would talk about, or anything, I mean, YouTube videos, whatever, anything that would talk about trial skills and trying cases. And, and then I found your podcast, like I said, popped up on my email feed while I was at a defense firm. So defense lawyers do listen to this. <laughs> I know. Um, and, uh, and then so I... Uh, started listening to your podcast. Really, I mean, your podcast is really what started me down this road of tracking down all of these resources to help me develop my trial technique. When Joe Freed came on and and talked, he was really, really insightful. And also Keith Mitnick, who I, I read a ton of Keith Mitnick. That's really what kind of gave me the courage to go ask for a lot of money in these smaller spine injury herniated disc cases. I mean, everything that I do in the courtroom can be traced back to something that I've read or something that I've seen, something that I've seen on, on courtroom view network. Of course, rules of the road, uh, advanced depositions by the AAJ, uh, Paul Scupter, and, you know, those are the, those are like the basics, right? Those are the first ones. And I think you even said on this podcast that those are the, those are the first ones that you want to read. So I did that. Yeah. And then also I, uh, and then of course, don't eat the bruises. I've listened to all of Keith Mitnick's podcasts and I apply, I applied a lot of his techniques in this trial. I've read David Ball, Damages 3 and Damages Evolving. I use David Ball's outline for opening statement. I, I think it's a really, really great way to kind of compartmentalize all of the pieces that you need to get in front of uh, at the very beginning of, of the trial. And then also I watch a lot of Mark Lanier on Courtroom View Network. I've listened to the entire J&J &J as Bestos talc powder trial. 
think he does a really great job with witnesses. And, and so, you know, I love how he really does a great job of one talking in present tense, and he does a really good job of keeping the jury on track. So he'll start his examination and say, all right, we're going to make these, we're going to make these stops today. You know, stop number one, we're going to talk about expert, your qualifications and your background and why you're here talking to us about this. Step number two, we're going to talk about the source and the cause of the injury. And then step number three, how long is the injury? You know, that kind of thing. It gives the jurors a really good roadmap and yeah. it helps them stay on track because if they miss something, it can be it can be critical. So I use a lot of Mark Lanier in my uh, evidence presentation and, you know, there's countless more uh, that I could that I could talk about. But uh, but yeah, I mean, just I, I've done everything that I can to kind of get myself get myself ready. And also Trotler University, I, I watch a lot of that and watching uh, listening to lawyers break down trials that they've done before. That's super helpful, too, because it kind of helps. Like if you watch it on CBN and then you watch it on trial or university, it, it tells you, you know, why they're doing what they're doing. And, and that can be really helpful, too. Have you been to Lanier's uh, seminar yet? No, I have not. You know, and, and uh. I, I'm not the best at going to the seminars. Uh, my <laughs> my practice was born in the in the pandemic. So, you know, a lot of a lot of my prep is just done listening to actually watching trials, reading transcripts of other great lawyers that, you know, are not like really that well known, but they're some of the best lawyers out there. You know, some of the lawyers that were involved in the the hog farm cases, I mean, are really good. And I read that transcript. And yeah, so a lot of what I do, a lot of my prep is just done uh, in front of the computer and reading books and meeting with people. But but that is one thing that I need to do a little better job of is, is getting out there um to the presentations and seeing them live and stuff. I got a lot of real practical about an IPVO document presenter. I, I changed the, what, some things we did with witnesses. I'm doing more between Sari Delamotte and Mark Lanier. I'm doing a lot more drawing and creating in person as opposed to having everything pre-prepared and beautiful with an artist. I think there's a place for both of them, but uh, you bought my King's, King flip chart, which is like a double wide flip chart which is a lot easier when you have bad handwriting like mine to write on. It gives you space to actually write and draw and it's uh, right. all that stuff. So I, I, I do highly recommend, uh, yeah, obviously I don't get it. He won't even come on the podcast. He's too busy, but uh, I still have a lot of respect <laughs> for him and, and I do highly recommend his seminar. Maybe you'll hear about that. I recommend it. Maybe I'll get him on here one day. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but I, but I do have you. So let me, let me ask, tell me about this case. So you got, a $1,076,000 verdict in uh, Collin County. So was this like a big truck crash, broken bones, big company, corporate <laughs> fault? So it was it was against an individual, and that was one of the things in the case that we really uh, had to get around um, because it's it's one thing to be going in be to be going in there against Darth Vader insurance company or a corporate defendant, you know, like Johnson, like Johnson and Johnson or, or, uh, you know, a, a for, fortune 100 retailer or something like that. But when you're going in there against, you know, so-and-so that lives down the street and is 65 years old and maybe just made a mistake, it's kind of hard. It can be hard to convince a jury to, um, assess a million dollars against him or, or to say he has to pay or put, put in a million, put a million dollar figure under his name. It can be, it can be difficult. So that's of course, one of the one of the things in the case that we wanted to make sure that we addressed, um, but to tell you about the case, it was a, it was just a, it was a red light, green light, traffic light dispute. Our client was 
driving down an access road and the defendant uh, ran a red light, crashed to him and crashed into him in the middle of the intersection. Our client had a five millimeter uh, herniation extrusion at the L5 S1 level. Uh, there was the MRI said no uh, impingement on the fecal sac, which is basically the sheath that surrounds the spinal cord. So that was something that we had to to get around because the client was having real pain and he was, you know, 26 years old. So obviously he never had pain there before the crash. He's having it since the crash. So that was something that we had to explain is, is kind of the mechanism of this pain, what's going on internally to, uh, to cause this. And, uh, yeah, in a nutshell, that's, that's pretty much, pretty much the case. So how much were your medical bills? Medical expenses were $45,000. And what did that consist of? That was uh, about four months of physical therapy and two epidural steroid injections that were spaced about uh, two years or year no, two years apart. Oh wow! Yeah. How long had it been between the last uh, medical treatment and the time of trial? Well, so the the second injection was shortly before the first trial setting, which is when I came in. I mean this. This was not my case from the beginning. Uh, one of the things that I'm really trying to do with my practice is get to where I can parachute into cases late, late before trial and, and go help, help out lawyers that could use a hand with their cases. So this is one that I parachuted into about just a couple weeks before the first trial setting, um, and he had just gotten that injection. Then the second trial setting was November, so I'd say it was you know about four months or something like that. How bad was the property damage? The property damage was was pretty bad. I mean, you know, uh, these uh, on an access road and uh, and uh, under a traffic light. I mean, you're going to have a pretty you're usually going to have a pretty high impact collision. So the property damage was was pretty bad, um, which a lot of times that's that's a lot more than what you're working with. So that was that was a good fact for us is the property damage was was pretty significant. The car was totaled. There were some there were some pretty compelling photos of the property damage. So that was one um, one benefit that we did have. What was the reason the client went so long without, I mean, he got one shot and then went over a year until he got another one. Well, so with the ESIs, you can get them like one to three times a year. It just kind of depends on the relief that you get. Also, the the client, he had moved and just like everybody else, like he was trying to get on with his life and, you know, he had moved to to a different place. And so he was kind of far away from the clinic he and this was also during the pandemic, so a lot of stuff was closed. The pain management yeah. doctor said, "Yeah, I mean, there were people that I didn't see for for years, uh, you know, for for two years, or I'm just now seeing that that were here and that were here the last time in in mid 2020." So that was a lot of it. He was doing a lot of at home exercises, and that was one of the issues that we had to explain in opening statement and. Uh, and then also, especially when we put our client on on direct and we asked him, you know, what what were you doing during this time? Uh, what were you doing uh, for your injury? And and then he walks through his entire daily routine, uh, which was really compelling. And it was stuff that you, you just can't make up that he wakes up, he stretches, um, takes his dog on a walk to loosen out his back. And then he goes to a job that he took so that he would have the freedom to stretch at his job. And, and you know, there's just a long list of things that that he did uh, in order to in order to help himself 
uh, and, and, you know, kind of use some health, help, uh, self-help mechanisms. And, and I think that was really, that was really helpful to the jury because, you know, as much as a lot of people think that, that the jury wants to hear about the client complaining and talking about how much it hurts and how many problems there are, you know, the jury, they, that's what they expect to hear. I mean, they expect to hear people come in here and complain and talk about how bad they have it. But for this client, what I really wanted to make sure that we did was talk about what he's doing to help himself. And it really worked because after the trial, it's the craziest thing. So after the trial, yeah, after we get the verdict, uh, the judge lets the jurors out, tells them that they can they can talk to us if they want to. And and a lot of them were kind of hanging out right by the exit doors. And we walk over there and they literally have a box of like some kind of baked goods. And I don't, I guess they got it for our client because they gave it to him. And, and they were just like, can we see the client? Can we talk to the client? (laughs) And, and then, so Austin, Austin, the guy I tried the case with, who did a a phenomenal job uh, with Ward Iyer and, and some other parts of the case, both he and I were, you know, we just, usually we would want to talk to the jurors right after and, and ask them about everything that they thought about the trial, but we just didn't want to ruin the moment. The client, you know, got choked up. I got choked up. It was a, it was a pretty, pretty special moment. That's incredible. I've never heard of that happening. That's really incredible. Uh, I want to go back a little bit, ask a little more about the trial. So you said it was a red light, green light. Was there a, a dispute as to who had the red light? Yeah, there was a dispute. It was a, you know, he said, she said thing. Like our person said it was green. Their person said it was green. Um, we had it's interesting. So we had a, a third party witness, um, just somebody who was traveling behind the defendant uh, that said he saw the defendant run the red light. So we had that on our side. Um, yeah. But what we had that was more important than that. And after I, I talked to one of the jurors, I called one of the jurors after the after the trial and talked to her. And she was actually an attorney. But one of the things that we did have that really helped us was the defendant in his deposition admitted that there was a vehicle right next to him approaching the intersection with him, basically, like right before he goes under the right before he he proceeds into the intersection. And since we got that fact in through him, it was really helpful because our client was coming from the defendant's right hand side. So if the defendant's light was green, you would think that the car that's approaching the intersection with the defendant would have gone into the intersection and been involved in the crash instead of, you know, the client, the the defendant and our client. Right. Um, Right. But since we got that fact in through their witness, through their client, the jury just, it, it completely sold the jury. And it was, and it was important because, and we got, and we called them adversely. We got that fact out on crap on cross adversely. And, and he was the second witness that we called. So it was something we were able to establish early on in the trial so we could talk about damages for the rest of it. Um, but what's interesting is that, that the jury, they didn't really, uh, after talking to the, the juror, they didn't really believe the third party witness all that much. They kind of thought that he was sort of playing it up a little bit. And, you know, he had just been cut off by the defendant apparently. So, there were mixed views about him in the deliberations room. So that fact admitted by the defendant that there was a car directly next to him approaching the intersection was, was integral in, in getting the, um, the liability verdict, which we thought we kind of thought we had uh, in the bag because we had a third party witness who's disinterested saying that the guy ran a red light, but sometimes that's not how it works. 
well, it's good someone thought to ask those questions. I mean, it sounds like someone took a good deposition and said exactly what was there. Were there any other vehicles right. around? I mean, you know, setting that scene and, and not just, well, I got an eyewitness. I'm not worried about it. I think right. the truth can kind of come out when people, even when they're trying to lie, it can come out when they give the other details. Right. Yeah. Austin did a great job of that. And, uh, and I was really, cause I, I did the cross examination. So when I was looking at that transcript, I was really thrilled to see that because, you know, sometimes when you jump in late, there's stuff that you would have done differently and, you know, but, uh, but he'd worked the case up. He did a phenomenal job. So that was, that's always nice. It's always helpful. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, I'm proving liability. So I'm figuring you called the eyewitness first, the defendant second. Yep. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. And, and we did that because, um, David, like what David Ball says in his book, he says that you want the first witness that you want to call is the witness that can confirm the most facts from your opening statement. That way, you know, you're keeping the jury on track and, and you're keeping your promises and you're, and you're doing it quickly when they're paying the most attention. So that was kind of the thought behind that. And then we called the defendant. And then obviously, like Roger Dodd says to do, we just had him admit all of our good facts that we could. And then from there, we just rolled into um, rolled into damages. It's actually funny because we wanted to put the, the experts on right after. Um, and one of them and two of our experts weren't there. And we were and we were kind of getting towards the end of the day. And the judge and the judge was like, all right, call your next witness. And I was like, well, you know, Your Honor, they're not here. We didn't expect to have to get to them today. And and she was and, – and we were like, we don't – you know, we don't have any witnesses. It's 4 o'clock. Um, I think we can adjourn for the day or could we adjourn for the day um, and then put the rest of our evidence on tomorrow morning and hopefully be done early tomorrow. And and she was like, well, I see a client. <laughs> and she was pointing at our yeah. – our, uh, our, yeah, I see a witness. And she was pointing to our client. And, and so it, – but it actually turned out – it worked pretty well because we were able to put him on and have him just talk about the liability stuff and then save the damages for later after we called the experts, talked about the medicine and, and all that stuff. So did you call your client twice then? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And I got the judge to agree that, look, he's not going to be cross-examined today. And so this is just we're we're just going to go through his direct until 5 p.m. and then we'll continue the rest of it uh, tomorrow. So. Uh, so it actually worked out kind of nice because it worked out kind of nicely because the jury got to hear from our client so early and and he did a really great job and the the examination went really well uh, and we just talked about liability and then liability was done um after after that day and we got to kind of move over to damages the next day which was kind of a nice little segment. So did you submit the medical bills in this case? We did. Uh we did. I'm usually against submitting the medical bills unless we're talking about like a non-permanent injury that has like that's complicated and and has a lot in medical expenses and not a lot in pain and impairment future pain and impairment um, but here we we did submit the medical bills and you know everybody has their preference on that and and you know and and you know when I'm coming into these cases late I always give the originating attorney the um you know, kind of the call, the final call on, on a lot of things, because they're the ones that have the money in the case. They're the ones that worked the case from the beginning. So reasonable minds can disagree on, on that type, on, on those kinds of things. And I just didn't really feel that the, that the medical expenses were going to anchor us 
um, because I, I really believed in our client. I believed in the jury and, and I thought that uh, our client had a really great story. And, you know, there were ways that we addressed it in opening. We, we say, look, medical expenses are $45,000, but that pales in comparison to the pain and impairment that he's had to deal with and, and what he's going to have to deal with for the rest of his life. And I think the jury's un- the jury understands that. So that's kind of how we worked through that issue and anticipated a possible anchoring of the verdict through, uh, you know, use of medical expenses. And was there any dispute as to whether the amount of the medical bills were reasonable? There was actually, and and I hate that because it's so boring and I always like to give the jurors like some entertainment and I want to be talking about the most important parts of the case, like the future pain, the future impairment, the reason we're going to be asking for millions of dollars. But there was, uh, there was a lot of cross-examination on that topic. The other side did not have an expert, a controverting affidavit expert because the bills were low, right? I mean, $45,000 is, it's, it's not that much. Um, so they did not have a, a cost expert controverting. They didn't call anybody to controvert the bills, but they tried to cross examine our pain management doctor on it. And, you know, our pain management doctor, he doesn't make, he doesn't really, uh, you know, put together the, the costs and everything. So there wasn't really much to cross examine him on. And this is what, was charged. This is what was charged for the medical expenses, and they didn't present any evidence that it was unreasonable. So, you know, it wasn't really. It didn't turn out to be a, a really big issue, and we really kept the attention off of that um, for the most part. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. So how did you frame your your damages in your opening statement? So there were a couple of, there were a couple of things that I wanted to get in front of. First, I wanted to get in front of the idea that our client doesn't look injured. A lot of times these spine injuries, kind of like TBI, they are invisible injuries. You can't see it. You can't see the pain on the person, right? Everything is kind of, you know, the pain is is beneath the surface. And so I really wanted to get in front of that in opening statement And so what I did was I used an analogy that is in David Ball's Damages Evolving book um, that says that your primary job as the jurors is to be an appraiser and to appraise the value of this, uh, the damages to this human being. And um, the damages to the human being I got from Nick Rowley, um, but uh, but it's the what I said in opening statement was you know, you're appraisers, and instead of appraising a painting or a house, you're appraising the damages to a human being, right? And it sounds serious, and they took it very seriously, and it kind of goes against the usual bias of these lawyers and these these uh, injured people are coming in here, and they're trying to play on our emotions, and, and they're trying to get sympathy, and you know, I, I specifically said, no, we're not here for sympathy. And the reason that we're going to be talking about this stuff is so that y'all can do a fair appraisal of this injury, of the damages to, to this human being. And then so we used a couple of analogies about what the qualities of good appraisals are. And, and one of the analogies was good appraisals don't judge a book by its cover. 
and you can have a, a big, beautiful house up on a hill that looks like it's worth millions of dollars, but beneath the surface, you've got, you, you've got some serious structural issues, and that house might not be worth a dime. So that was one of the analogies that we used uh, for that. That was something that we really wanted to get in front of. Uh, and then we also kind of used a similar, the, the appraisal analogy for the per diem damage model. Um, and that's what we used was a per diem. We said, this is a permanent injury and he's going to have permanent pain. The disc is not going to, un, a disc does not unherniate. And we used an analogy of a jelly donut. You know, once the jelly's out of the donut, it's not going to go, it's not going to go back in, right? Um, this, is, this is permanent. There, is, there are things that you can do to help with the pain, but there's nothing you can do to completely fix it and go away. And so for the per diem damage model, you know, as the, a lot of the listeners know, per diem damage model is just where you argue or where your damage model is, is that this person's going to have pain for the rest of their life. They should be compensated for it moment by moment, hour by hour, because that's how they're experiencing it, right? Um, and so in order to use the per diem model and to kind of orient them to that, first use the appraisal analogy to say good appraisals are detailed and comprehensive, right? They take into account all the details, and that's why we're going to be talking to you about the details of this case. And he's going to have a – and then I used what Keith Mitnick says a lot saying we're talking about a lot of pain over a lot of time, right? And used the pilot light pain analogy that Keith Mitnick um, often talks about, the, the analogy that says that the pain is like a pilot light. It's always flickering in the background. And uh, depending on how much the, the person, uh, depending on their level of activity, that pilot light can flare up and then flare back down, you know, the more they move around, the more it flares up, or if they're, or if they're um, completely still and, and not moving at all for a long time, then it flares up again. So those were some of the analogies that we used in order to orient the jurors to that per diem model. And um, I think it was pretty helpful. And when we talked to the jurors afterwards, they really were expecting for us to ask for a lot more money. Hmm. And they, uh, and so they were pretty they were pretty surprised when we said like 1.1 or, you know, whatever it was. Uh, so, so yeah, that was, that was kind of how we got in front of that, um, that issue. Did you state a number in opening or did you wait for closing to give your numbers? I didn't state a number in opening. I just said at the very end that the evidence is going to show that this case is, is worth well over a million dollars and left it at that and then let him kind of fill in the, let Austin fill in the uh, per diem model during closing, which he did a, a phenomenal job of. And uh, did Austin do anything to set up any of these analogies with the per diem uh, idea in jury selection? Well, so I don't think that we talked about the, yeah, I don't think we talked about the per diem model in jury selection, but we did get 16 strikes for cause, which was great. Oh, wow. Thanks. And uh, well, and it wasn't me. Austin did the questioning and then I did I did the note taking and then I argued the cause strikes, which which I think is a really great way to do it, to have like two people on it and like strategize about the questions that you're going to ask. And then and then have the person that's actually sitting there watching the whole thing go down, you know, write notes and then and then prepare the argument for the four cause strikes. And I really wanted to do that. And so we uh, so he asked some good questions that uh, we were able to get a lot of jurors uh, stricken through. What were the main the main sources of the call strikes? What were the kind of big topics? 
Well, so this is, this is a big one, and this is one that we came up together. This is something that David Ball talks about a lot. Applying the burden of proof to damages when we're talking about significant amounts of money against an individual. Can you do that? And a lot of jurors were like, no, I would need to see way more, especially if we're talking about damages, especially if we're talking about, you know, millions of dollars and that sort of thing. And then there was one juror that made a, a statement that that we believed was definitely for cause grounds. And then Austin asked the other jurors to raise their hands if they agreed. And they all they did. I took them down. The judge took them down and we just went and got them. That's great. So. Uh, did you call any lay witnesses or just your client? We did. So we called two uh, lay witnesses. Um, well, of course, the, the eyewitness, but we called two um, before and after lay witnesses uh, that we called the father and we talked and we called the partner. And uh, our client was a gay man. And the partner was really helpful because he could tell us kind of, the, you know, the day in the life and the effect that it's had on their relationship and those things that a partner would observe. So it was, it was really that I think that was really helpful. That was an important piece of the trial. So yeah, always good to have before and after witnesses because it really takes the burden off your client. It makes your client less stressed about testifying. I don't, I would never go to trial without a before and after witness in an injury case. I agree. I'm so happy to hear that you made the effort investment to call doctors. Because I, I see too many people just try to they they want to go cheap and they don't understand why the juries go cheap. You you got to and 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 finding those before and after witnesses. Collin County, I know it's not as deep red as it was. Uh, did you find the the game man issue was at all an issue with the jury or, or it just doesn't matter anymore? It didn't matter at all. We talked about possibly addressing it in Vordire, but we decided to just go ahead and leave it alone. Uh, we thought that we could identify the jurors who would have a problem with that through a lot of the other questions. And so we left it alone in Vordire, um, and, you know, we didn't really have an issue with it, thankfully. Yeah, it's interesting because I've, you know, had similar things. We're, we had cases where we're going to call a, a spouse that was the same gender or call a partner of the same gender and. Then I had a case with an African American client in a you know a a jury veneer that was going to be less than five or ten percent African American, and I haven't addressed it. And I think just letting the jurors know, like you know, we're not asking for sympathy, we're not asking you to treat people any different. We just trust you and think you're going to treat people like people. I think that society's changed a lot where I don't think we have to address. That. I know other people really disagree with me, but I would do what you did, and uh, obviously it worked for you. No, I'm totally with you, and. I really think that one of the key ingredients to getting this verdict was was trusting the jury like you always talk about on this podcast, like you talked about when you went on the Elevate podcast. I mean, that was one of the main things that you talked about. And when you trust the jury, it, it takes a lot of the stress off of you. And when you trust the jury, you're not you're not afraid of the truth. You're not afraid of a witness of the same sex and what the jurors are going to think about that because you trust them. And so that was really something that I think really helped us and gave, gave us the courage to, to ask for this recovery that our client deserved. And so uh, what were the harms and losses? I mean, so we know you've got 45,000 in past meds, you've got 150,000 in future meds, any wages? No, no wages. Um, the future pain was, I think was 300 and then the future impairment was 100. And then actually, our life care planner was able to was able to testify that he was going to need future injections. And so that wasn't in the 
uh, well, our pain management doctor was able to testify that he was going to need future injections. And that wasn't in the life care planner's plan. Um, but, you know, it was an opinion rendered during treatment and yeah. the judge didn't have a problem with it. So and the defense didn't object to it. So, you know, we didn't have really much of a problem getting that in. So that added um, in future medical care. It, it added a pretty, pretty significant uh, portion to it, a couple hundred thousand. That's that's incredible. And so I'm I'm assuming that they just offered you tons of money before this trial. No, they offered forty five thousand dollars. Well, that made it easy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's great when they make it easy like that on you. <laughs> so in closing, what did you did you do the closing or did Austin do it or you split it? Austin did the closing. Um, he did it. He did a great job. He picked up on a lot of the themes that we touched on uh, during during opening Um he, uh, he, he laid out the per diem model beautifully. And, you know, this was all stuff that we talked about before I jumped into the trial. And it's really funny because Austin and I met when I was on the defense side and he was on the plaintiff side and we had a, a big motion against each other and we had kept in contact ever since. And, you know, he was helpful with me starting my practice, you know, so we talk a lot about cases and, and then so I started talking about, you know, Keith Mitnick and a lot of the strategies that he uses. And uh, and like whenever Austin would talk to me about a problem in a case that he was trying to get around. And so I would tell him about Keith Mitnick and then he goes and buys Keith Mitnick. And then, you know, now we're both just kind of nutty about Keith Mitnick and all his strategies and <laughs> trying to apply all of them. And so we really have we really see eye to eye on on pretty much uh, everything just because we read the same stuff. That's great. And so what was the, did you get to talk to the jury afterwards at all? I know they had, you didn't want to interrupt this awesome. I mean, they brought baked goods for your client. You, you definitely connected with the jury when they brought baked goods for your client afterwards. I've never heard of that. Right. And they didn't That's even want awesome. to see us. They just wanted to see the client, you know? That's good. I, <laughs> we, so yeah, we talked to the jurors a, a little bit after and it's, and it's crazy because uh, there were 38 members of the panel. We got 16 strikes for cause. A couple of other people were excused. We get, you get six peremptory strikes. So we were in a spot to where we were like, okay, there's one, if we can either, so we waived three of our peremptory strikes in order to get the jury yeah. that we got, because we were going to lose the panel. We, it was going to bust the panel anyway, if we didn't do that. And so there was this one uh, juror who said that he thought tort reform was a good idea and that he believed in tort reform, but he didn't raise his hand for any of the other questions. He didn't have any problem applying the burden of proof. He didn't have any problem doing all the things that we wanted him that we wanted him to do. And so we were just stuck on, do we bust the panel over this one juror? And we decided, uh, we decided not to, we decided, okay, let's keep him on. And then fast forward to the end of the trial, who's holding the paper, uh, who's holding the verdict form when they come <laughs> in and, and after the knock, it's, it's that guy. Right. And, Oh, that's gotta be scary. Yeah. Yeah. We were terrified. And then, uh, and then they read the verdict and he was one of the ones that we talked to. And he was the one that, that told me about the, um, getting the defendant to admit that there was a car approaching him, uh, into the intersection, how that really did it for him. And he didn't have any issue at all with the damage model or anything like that. So it's crazy trust in the jury. Just like, just like we said, it's crazy what happens when, when you, you, you watch them not raise their hand to a lot of the questions, um, that, uh, that you're concerned about, like applying the burden of proof and things like that. And, and you just go with it and you trust them. And you know, sometimes it works out. 
Yep. And, you know, no one, there's no jury instruction saying that the case is only about the medical treatment. You can only get two times or three times the medical bills or, you know, whatever that is. I mean, you can, right. you know, make the case about what it's really about, trust the jurors to do the right thing. I think it's when we're scared they're not going to do the right thing and we push too hard and argue too hard that, we, uh, that they don't do it just because we look like we're scared. For sure. And one of the things that, that we did in this trial, uh, one of the things that I really made it a point to do is um, kind of try to cut against the stereotypes that people have about lawyers and, and litigation and injury attorneys specifically. You know, they expect that you're going to come in there and, and fight with the other side, not be able to agree on anything, not be able to get along with the other side, with each other, with the judge, and that it's just going to be this whole mess and nobody can agree, nobody can get along, and everybody's just kind of being rude to, rude to each other. And I made it a point to be as positive as I could be and, and be a, as nice and polite to everybody in the courtroom as I could possibly be. The defense lawyer, she was she was very contentious. She made every possible objection. You know, the judge overruled them all. She did everything she could to try to derail the trial. And, you know, a lot of people get upset about that. I found that it was it was a lot easier to just like be nice to her. And, you know, it's um, it, people expect you to, to react a certain way to that. And, and when you don't give in to those stereotypes and when you treat them politely, uh, it, it's really it's really helpful. And and, and also you tell yourself, like, she's just doing her job. Right. That kind of helps you stay sane. She's just doing her job and she's doing it the best way that she knows how. Like she's not a bad person. She's that's just her strategy. And and sometimes that works for people. And so you just you don't get upset. You're nice to everybody and cut against that stereotypes. So we really made it a, a big point to to not do that. What I try to do is just and, and I'm not saying I never slip. Ninety eight percent of the time I don't slip. And I just remember myself, this is a gift from the other side. Every time they're being upstep, you know, obstructionist, every time they're overly objecting, they're making everything difficult. They're showing the jury that right. they don't trust them, that they that they don't that they that they don't want the jury to know the truth, that they're scared of the truth, and they're showing who the bad guy is. And so I'm you know, I'm trying to just remember like it's a gift. It's a gift. Don't get mad, it's a gift. For sure. It gets, you know, annoying when someone's constantly you can't get a you know, a paragraph of your opening or closing done, but it just it, it works. And when they're objecting, leading the whole time, when you're just like trying to move along the examination and they're not contested issues and they're just objecting, leading the entire time, it really helps you. And then what also helps you is during their case, when they lead their client the whole time and you just sit back and don't say anything, it, it just it really helps to to um, uh, to to be polite and, and to not make the mistakes that they're making. I agree. So what's next for you? What's next on your on your agenda? Well, uh, I've got a got quite a few trial settings coming up uh, that I'm getting ready for. Uh, some cases that I'm looking to parachute in on, just like I uh, just like I did on this one. Um, you know, I keep a very lean docket of cases uh, so that I can do that. Uh, and I, I handle, you know, I, I I take plaintiff contingency cases only, and and I take other types of cases and injury cases. Like I'll take business disputes. I'll take uh, I, I have quite a few pretty big will contests that I handle just because I find those cases fascinating for different reasons. Um, but, uh, but the injury cases and representing injured people, of course, has a special place in my heart and I love doing that type of work. Um, so yeah, it's just for me, just trying to get better, keep learning and try as many cases as I possibly can. 
And if someone wants to talk to you or maybe even someone's got a case that they could, you know, they thought, well, maybe Ben will come and help me get a million dollar verdict on this case. Uh, that sounds fun. How does someone find you in the world? Sure. Just uh, you can call my cell, 361-438-1073. Or you can just shoot me an email at ben at B as in boy, N as in Nancy, aalaw.com. Uh, and then, yeah, I'd be happy to happy to talk to you. Or if you just have a case that, you know, you have some some things that you are concerned about and want to just talk strategy on how to address them, you know, during opening and during during the um, witnesses and the evidence, then I'm ha- always happy to talk about that, too. I absolutely love doing that. So happy to do that also. Well, thank you. And we will have Ben's contact information in the show notes. Ben, you have both inspired me to want to go out there and try some more cases. And and uh, and then you just, when I got your email saying that you got things from this podcast that help you get that verdict, it just really warmed my heart and it made me so happy. And so I really want to thank you for for reaching out and for agreeing to come on and share share your victory and share your knowledge with us. And so thank you so much. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Um, and yeah, it was great to finally meet you. I've probably listened to a hundred hours of your voice. <laughs> so it's good to put a, put a face to a voice and yeah, I'll look forward to seeing you again, hopefully sometime soon. Thank you. Well, thank you, Ben. And thank you all for listening. One last thing I want to pitch. Uh, I am having, if you want to put a face to a name, I am having the, my big rig boot camp our annual seminar here in San Antonio, Texas on June 13th. If you want to learn more about that, you can go to our website, bigrigbootcamp.com or keep listening to the podcast. We'll talk more about it, but I, we're going to put on a really good show this year. It's going to be a lot of fun as well as hopefully educational. And we encourage anyone who does plaintiff's work to sign up. You defense lawyers are listening in. You're not allowed. I'm sorry. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Michael. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff lawyer-only content, In live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.